0: And so just as a weekly rhythm, we're going through whole books of the Bible left to right, and I want to show you a little outline um, of James, the book that we're in, of Faith and Action. James um, is kind of like a really good therapist. He's a good counselor because James is saying that the gospel is not just trying to bring us out of hell, but bring us into wholeness, um, to bring us out of a fractured life, a divided life, a hypocritical life, a life that is, you know, going left one day and going right the other day, moving around like the waves of emotions and, and putting us on solid places um, into wholeness. And, uh, and so he says it starts in the heart. You know, the thing about a scalpel is um, you can trust the scalpel to the degree. You can trust the character of the hand holding the scalpel. So when things are not working out well for you, and when um, it does not seem like good and perfect gifts are coming your way, when it seems like you're getting a scorpion and you're not getting a loaf of bread, it's imperative that the heart that's not wavy stands on this point. You might not know all the answers, but you do believe and stand on this point that God is good, that he is not evil, he is not cruel, he does not tempt his people. And that moment, your belief in your heart towards the moment that's coming to you is going to lead to fractured or whole, one way or the other. Based on that simple faith, Marcus, is, is do we believe that God is good? Number two, that humans are not uh, so much Hitlers, we're hypocrites. And um, we're here this way one day and we're going right the next day because we can tend to look at the mirror, see the broccoli in our teeth, walk away and think that that sermon application was from somebody else. And that, uh, that, that the coming home of, um, of repentance and the things that uh, are fractured in our lives not only just need faith, but also action, need deeds, need uh, work to be done. Not works that earn us salvation, but work, good work that we are doing as a result of what Jesus has done uh, for us and the Spirit in us. And lastly, how about that tongue? And maybe for today, it's those thumbs, right? Uh, that he says that uh, our thumbs and our tongues are fractured. That on one moment, we're praising God. and another moment, we're cursing out our neighbor. And, uh, and really the fullness, the epitome of wholeness is not just happiness, but holiness, and that our tongues would be used not just to burn down houses, but to build people up in Jesus, that they would be steered and, and, and practice self-control. And so that's exactly where we're at in James chapter 2 when it comes to faith and action looks like wholeness or wholehearted life. Um, so probably my first real interaction with, uh, with counseling was uh, marriage counseling. Around 25, uh, me and Kyra decided to um, not because of any sort of a, a crisis or any sort of instigating incident, decided to just go check the tires and um, go into counseling and just see what the Lord might say to us by being intentional and going through, you know, biblical counseling. Uh, I remember when we did our premarital counseling, I was far too uh, immature to sort of understand uh, the benefit and the wealth that was in front of me. I actually showed up to my premarital counseling appointment with a uh, with, uh, Abercrombie & Fitch a corduroy blazer on, and uh, one of these trucker hats with clappy hands on them because I think I was probably overcompensating for my insecurity about being in the room at that point, and that was about it. And so once I was uh, 25, you know, the, the student, uh, the teacher appears when the student's ready. Uh, we, we sat down in it, and um, I think I was, uh, I was actually really looking forward to it uh, because I think in my mind I was picturing this epiphany moment. You know, this, this um, I, I'd seen growing up uh, as, as a young 16, 17-year-old, seen Goodwill Hunting and uh, there's a moment in Good Will Hunting where the guy comes to the counselor and there's this dad-like figure that puts his arm around you and tells you it's not your fault and you start crying and everything opens up and all of a sudden there's this epiphany moment, right? Like you realize like, the real truth of, of what's going on in your life and, um, and it leads to uh, this, this, uh, this new understanding and this new vision to help you um, get calibrated, get, um, get set right um, with, uh, with, with all the big, big issues in your life. And, and there was. Uh, there was... Um, A moment when uh, we were sitting with the marriage counselor um, about a couple sessions in, and the marriage counselor, in just the kindest, most shepherding way, uh, asked me and Kyra, So, what's it been like to be married since you were 15 years old? (laughs) I mean, me and Kyra have been married at 21 or whatever, but really, emotionally, other than physically, emotionally, uh, in terms of time, in terms of the way that we identified ourselves, we're acting and walking and being married by the time we were 15, far before we were ever at the aisle. And so he brought that question up. And so that was an epiphany moment. That was a moment when uh, the lights kind of shined bright and, and I was able to see myself and see life in a new perspective. Um, but outside of, of the epiphany moment of counseling, um, a lot of the counseling process was not just wisdom, it was work. There was a lot of little things that um, I'll, I'll still remember today, you know, about the ways that he was showing that me and Kyra could put um, Jesus in the place, uh, put our spouse in the place that Jesus should sit that a lot of marriage, the reason why things are going wrong is because we are expecting out of our spouse what Jesus is supposed to give us, and we're putting the responsibility that that they were never meant to offer us and the blame, you know, that really probably belonged to us on the person uh, that's next to us in our marriage. Uh, Secondly, I thought it was profound. The guy said, you know, um, that that as a marriage, uh, you're not so much clocking in as an employee, you're coming as a student. Um, That the thing that you love the most, you're the most attentive to, and you're the most studious to, and you're listening, and you're taking notes, and you're learning. You're not just showing up and doing a duty. You're learning somebody uh, and how to love that person well. And lastly, I thought it was really great that uh, marriage counselor was just talking about a lot of things are not right and wrongs uh, to be corrected, but they're just tensions to be managed. There are times to go fast and times to go slow. There are times uh, to speak and a time to be silent. And so those are tensions to be managed that he and she are not necessarily doing the right way or the wrong way, but learning how to t- manage the tensions of the differences within the marriage. But of course, the biggest thing that, that I, and I mentioned before uh, that I learned through that whole process that really the counseling process, the, pr- the process of going from from, from broken and shattered and fragmented in Jekyll and Hyde uh, into wholeness, the process of going from brokenness to wholeness is in part about wisdom and illumination, but in large part about good, hard, solid, hard work. Uh, little small steps of scary, sometimes um, discouraging and inconvenient, uh, little physical therapy moments, less so of a chiropractor where you just go to the office and they crack your back and you snap out of it and you come back and everything's great again, but actually just small difficult steps of obedience in the same direction is really what causes a person to become whole and really a marriage to potentially come whole um, in, in the first place. And so James is a good counselor in this way because uh, uh, I want you to picture, okay, so it's Friday and you have your, uh, your counseling appointment and you go to see Dr. James and he's uh, half-brother of Jesus and wrote one of the books of the Bible, so he's pretty good, right? Uh, and so you, uh, you pull your car in, it's 530 and you sit down with him and you're thinking... Uh, that, the, that the first questions out of, out of his mouth are going to have to do with forgiveness. I mean, you're not a counselor, but you've seen enough Good Will Hunting movies. You know, probably somewhere along the line, there's something that my dad did or something that I did or something that my spouse did or my boss is doing to me, and I need to work myself to forgiveness because the gateway to forgiveness is wholeness, right? Or the gateway to wholeness is forgiveness. And so you sit down at 5.30, and he starts asking the questions, and to your dismay, to your surprise, he unexpectedly swerves the question of forgiveness, and he starts talking about favoritism. The first words out of James's mouth as he gets through the index of the book is not actually about forgiveness. It's first about favoritism. When he says, um, brothers and sisters, you, you should, if you have faith in Jesus, faith cannot mutually exist with favoritism, with treating somebody based on their wealth rather than their worth in Jesus. And, 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 and so you're puzzled and you ask a little bit more about this and you, and you reach into it and you want to know why is he talking about favoritism and not, not forgiveness. And, and he starts explaining it because... James is aptly reminding us that the full picture of wholeness um, is not to feel good, but is the love of neighbor. The full full picture of a person fully put right back again, fully made uh, to be like Jesus, fully going through the entire counseling process, going from brokenness into wholeness, um, is is not the process, just the process of me um, managing my anger, um, balancing out my my anxiety, overcoming my personal shame, and getting into happiness. The full picture of of wholeness is not a person <clears throat> that is made from unhappy to happy. It's a person that's made from broken to holy. It's a person that's made to look like Jesus and a person that, that has uh, the, the, the following of the royal laws, what James calls it, which is, which is the love of neighbor. And so really what he's going to challenge uh, us on this morning and what he challenged you at 5.30 on Friday if you sat down um, is that um, the love of some people at the expense of other people is actually not love, it's idolatry. That even pagans love somebody, right? Like it's the 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 the, the claim of, of of human depravity is not saying that that all that people aren't good to their mom or writing cards on, on Mother's Day or that people aren't good to people that are good back to them. That's not that's not the claim of, of, of the of the gospel or biblical understanding of humanity. The claim of humanity is that is that people um people people's love is is. Uh, is true, is valid, but it's not unconditional because um, we, we tend to love people at certain places, at certain times, and in certain images, uh, but not all the time. And this is what Jesus says to this, and I'll put it up on the screen when it comes to what actual love is uh, out of Matthew 5, Tucker, if I could read it off the screen this morning. He says this about loving your neighbor. He says this about a whole person. Like when you think about, I'm going to counseling, I'm gonna pay $100 an hour to talk to somebody, and the goal of this thing is wholeness. What's your vision on the other side of that? Jesus says this is wholeness. It's not just loving the people that are good to you, it's not just loving the people that are convenient to you, it's not just um, having a clairvoyant moment of being able to get your blood pressure down when you're around people, that the full picture of biblical wholeness is the love of enemy, it's the love of all people, because to love some people is to love no people. To love some people is not the love of God, it's not being made perfect. So Matthew 5 says this way, you've heard it said, to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He's saying that that's, you know, the human code, and that is what's written in the law, and um, and what people aim for. But continuing on, he says that, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Next verse. um, That you will be children of your Father in heaven. You see, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. Like in North Korea right now, it's 72 degrees. It's beautiful. Not because God's playing a trick, but because God is kind and he's patient and he's slow to anger. And he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. This is the way that our heavenly Father is perfect in love. Love that's not idolatry is, keep going, next slide. Oh, do we have a next slide? I'm sorry, uh, that's, the, that's the extent of it. Love that's not idolatry is not loving some people, it's loving all people to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, to go from fully, from brokenness to wholeness is not just to love some people, but to love all people because that is what the love of God is. And so he does get to the end of this chapter to the topic of forgiveness. Forgiveness is the gateway to, uh, to wholeness in Jesus, to be forgiven by God and to extend forgiveness to others. But we can't get to forgiveness if we don't know what we need to be forgiven of. That the person that we're holding in contempt, the person that we're holding in bitterness, the person we're not forgiving, um, first and foremost, that, that prison that we're holding them in starts from the prison that we are living in when we don't understand what it is that we've been forgiven of vertically. So this is what James says uh, in James chapter 1, starting in verse 1. And remember, all of the different little verses start the same way. As he transitions from one point to the next, he starts this way again. My brothers and sisters, he's not talking to the world, he's talking to the church. He says, my brothers and sisters, believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, you must not show favoritism. Loving some and not loving all is idolatry. It's loving people because The way they look, or it's loving people because of what they can do for you, or it's loving people because they're convenient, or because it offers you companionship, or it keeps you from being lonely. That's that's companionship. That's that's connection. But that's not biblical love. That's not the fullness of what God says is agape love. It's loving all people because if you don't love all people, it's not loving really anyone with the love of God. So He says you can't do this because favoritism is treating someone based on their wealth rather than their worth. I love the C.S. Lewis quote uh, in um, the uh, Weight of Glory. Um, long quote, but a simple point. There are no ordinary people, says C.S. Lewis. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, they're all going away. All of the old earth is going to pass away at some point. Their life is to ours is a life of a gnat. But every human being that you've ever walked by, their value cannot be diminished or added to or extended or accentuated by any of the things in the first sentence because they're immortal based on the image of God in them. They are not added in value based on the idols in our heart. They, are, they, they have an inherent value because of the value that is implicit in them by the image of God that they carry. Every person you ever pass today, both in and outside of Christ, carries the image of God, and it's indiminishable. But it is immortals that we talk to. We joke with them. We casually throw them around. We work with them. We marry them. We snub them. We exploit them. They're immortal horrors of everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be that kind... And is the fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken uh, each other seriously, without flippancy or superior presumption. So the first point that he's making is that every human being you've ever met is eternal, is immortal, and carries inherent worth and value because of the image they bear, not the clothes that they wear or what's in their bank account. And so, therefore, if we believe in Christ, then what we are saying is that every person we pass today and every person beside you right now is worth the death of Christ, and to treat them other than the worth of death of Christ undermines the faith that you have in him. So to believe that his death is worth something means that every person, regardless of how they look, what they say, what their aptitude is, has inherent value from the spot, and nothing that they add or subtract from that can take away from the value. If you, if you have favoritism, it means that you do not have faith, or to the extent of the faith that he wants to impose it. Now, he shifts in verse 2, and he's given an illustration, an example it is not the main point. The main point is do not show favoritism for any reason, but he, he's, he's, he's leaning it into this one example having to do with money and how people can show favoritism based on uh, material wealth. He says, suppose a man comes into your meeting with a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man has filthy clothes on and also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, you have discriminated among uh, yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. So he's not saying be blind. He's not saying don't recognize the fact that some people are rich and some people shouldn't be singing on stage and some people should be singing on stage. And some people are trustworthy and some people... It's not saying trust everybody the same or treat everybody the same, but it is saying do not strip people of their value. Do not dehumanize people with your eyes or with your heart. And so... Um, I'm sure there's different ways that different societies you know, measure wealth. Even billionaires, what is it? Elon Musk wears jeans you know, and T-shirts. It's like, I think we, we categorize wealth in different ways, and I think we might be missing the point if we only assume that we're talking about you know, material things that people wear. But I just wanted to write up a, a few different capitals. I remember from this uh, old Mike Green book that I read a while ago called Oinkonomics, and it was all about different types of capital, different types of wealth that people can have. And I want you to think about the way that wealth could... Um, could steer the human heart or could cause the human heart to add or diminish value of people around them um, based on the wealth that they have. And so here's some other kinds of wealth that people could have. For example, um, somebody could be spiritually saved, could have the fullness of Christ in them, but not know or have the language or the articulation to explain that. And that doesn't diminish their worth. Their worth is still based on on the worth of Christ. So understand that the people in your small group and the people next to you the category of being able to explain sound doctrine does not necessarily infer on the spiritual life that they have inside of them. There are some people that just talk good. They're just articulate. That's a wealth. That's something that's either been given or learned, or it's, or it's a gift that they have, but the ability to quote scripture and quote people can be totally separate from spiritual health, and therefore is wealth. Secondly, relational wealth. Some people know how to stop talking and emotionally listen to you and be connected to you and ask how your day is going. And some people don't. And that is an emotional quotient. And it's a gift that we would like to have around the church and it's something that we would like to see and something that I think God can pour out, just like he can pour out every other gift. But that's not implicit on somebody's wealth or worth. So, excuse me, their worth. And so relational wealth, relational equity is a wealth. It is a wealth. Physical wealth, the ability for somebody to look good or to be fit or work out, and for it to actually matter, because heaven knows you could work out on it and it not matter for a long time. The ability to have IQ, right? The ability to have intellectual, like street smarts or book smarts. These are all these are all finite things that are going to pass away, and they don't infer on people's value. This is wealth, and lastly, financial wealth. Probably the least important of these things, but really have money into your pocket. And so here's the deal. This is the, what I think James is asking us. He's not talking about you know, do you trust people or do you, um, do, you, do, you, do you communize things and make everybody redistribute their wealth? He's not saying that. He's saying, are you stripping people's wealth in your value? In other words, are you keeping people from your table based on what they have rather than who they are and what Christ has done for them? So let's say you put all those words on, in, 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 in your mind's eye and you rank everybody and you think about the people that are, you actually allow at your table and you take all those different wealths, and you ask yourself, you say, out of 10, How many people do you actually allow at your table that are under five of any of these things? Sociologists say that people won't hang out with people that are more than two across from them. He says, that's not Christ. The gospel is not based on affinity. It's based on the gospel. And therefore, it's based on the worth that is bestowed on somebody at the cross in Calvary, not by what's in their pocket or what's on their tongue, the ability to articulate concepts. Do you have anyone at your table that is under a five in the ability to articulate spiritual things? I think that's what James is saying. Do you have anyone at your table that is relationally difficult to deal with, that is under five, does not handle conflict well, does not listen well, does not have empathy? Do you have anybody under a five or less, you know, less than two away from you? Let's say if you're at a two, right? Are the people at your table cute? Do they look pretty good, right? I mean, I know, like, we think we should be on this, but we're kind of not. They look good. They got a good jawline, right? He's saying, watch out for that. Because you do not want your thing based on value. You want it based on Christ. You want your table based on Christ. And he's going to warn exactly some of the implications of what happens when we, when we play that game. But favoritism is forbidden, is what he's saying. The body of Christ should be centered around the gospel, around the cross, which implies that every person that comes our path is worth the death of Christ. And when it comes to inside the body of Christ, the people that are invited to the table, it cannot be based on their wealth. It must be based on their worth, on what Jesus paid. So he says, and he goes on, and he, I love James because he's going straight to the point about money. But the thing about money is, <clears throat> he's not speaking to people that have money based on guilt. He's, he's speaking to them based on warning. Most of the time, we pity the poor and envy the rich, but he actually, usually in James, says the opposite. He said, You should pity the, the rich and envy the poor. This is the second time he said it, but this is how he says it in, in verse 5. <clears throat> he says, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit? the kingdom he promised to those who love him. Like I know we have these escape hatches like, well, God loves rich people and he loves poor people too and poor people aren't closer to Jesus. And that's true. There's plenty of bitter, ugly, unforgiving poor people, for sure, as there are rich people. But it is, it is a lot easier to be poor in spirit when you're poor in your pocket. It just is. It's just easier when, when you don't have the idols alluring you and the possibilities and the trappings of intellectual wealth and spiritual wealth and all these things to find actual kingdom wealth. And that's why he says the poor in spirit will find the kingdom of God not because just poor people find Jesus, but he's saying that, that the, the incline is a little bit easier. On the opposite, he says in verse six, but you have dishonored the poor and isn't the rich who are exploiting you? They're not, are not the ones that are dragging you to court and they're the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him who you belong. So we were in a, a, a prayer class um, one time and my, a friend of mine was talking about how the prayer class actually, um, it was a wonderful class and, and it was a time that we were um, you know, it's like learning a language, like you got to try stuff and you got to fail and you got to pray out loud and to pray 10 words out loud in public is, you got to start with one word out loud and so forth. And so the prayer class was, was really, really fruitful. But for this particular person, they were struggling in the prayer class and the prayer class actually made it harder to pray than easy to pray. Um, because um, the prayer class had these kind of like guidelines about the way that we were going to engage the heart of God and what we were not going to do and what we were going to do. And uh, there was like, um, you know, some verses in scriptures about like what a what good prayer looks like and what less good prayer looks like. And there's all these categories that were created. And it was really interesting, this person they were talking about when they were in this prayer class, ultimately speaking, um, they found themselves even away from the prayer class, in the prayer closet, praying to, praying to God, but seeing the prayer teacher's face on the face of God. Like, in other words, that somehow that the, the pedestal that that person was putting that, that teacher on was actually able um, to become the rubric by which they were judging their prayer life. And that prayer class actually, instead of ushering them into more prayer, got in the way of their ability to pray to their father in heaven. Isn't that funny? So what does he say there in verse six? Like, I don't really have a lot of rich people taking me into court and suing me. Actually, if I've ever been sued, it might've been by a poor person or almostly, right? You know what I'm saying? Like rich people aren't dragging us to court. So what's he saying? Verse six, you dishonored the poor, but it's the rich who are exploiting you. It's the rich that are judging you. It's the rich that are blaspheming you. Have you noticed like when you're, when you're hanging out with people that don't have much, there isn't a lot of pretense that's necessary because we're all publicly poor. We're just all broke. It's when we're hanging out with the Joneses that you have to start keeping up with the Joneses, isn't it? Like whether it's explicitly or implicitly, when we're all hanging out with people that are IQs at least within realms of, of two or more, we can't say anything stupid because their face is gonna turn out to be the face of God. Have you noticed this? That the pedestals we put people on Why are we surprised when we put people on a pedestal that they look down on us? Because you have to to keep up with the Joneses to stay in with the Joneses. And maybe it's not the Joneses' fault. It's probably just our fault, right? Because we're imagining all this stuff. But when you're in there, you think you're keeping people out by being rich and exclusive. You're actually locking yourself in because you have to keep up with the good looks. I mean, what happens? Like You know that everybody everybody knows that everybody in this circle, I mean, they're not saying it out loud, but everybody here is pretty good looking. What happens if I stop being good looking? Am I involved in this table anymore? All the gossip, right? Oh, you know those old stupid people—they're such heretics because they don't know the Bible the right way. Like when you judge, it judges yourself. It's a, it's a rubber glue situation, isn't it? Because you know that everything that you ever say, every word, needs to be calculated. Because if I say anything that sounds like heresy, I'm going to get kicked out of this table. You see how 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 being favoritist actually puts you in prison. The judger, the judge, the person that's doing the judging, actually. Is, is worse than the person getting judged. And heck, I hate getting judged, but it's, he's saying it's even worse to be the judger because you put yourself in a prison and you've locked yourself, according to wealth, to the table that you're belonging to. And every turn that you're making and every thought that you're, you're having to calculate is all dictated and mandated by this whole thing of wealth. And so Jesus isn't ultimately the one that judges us. It's, 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 it's humans that we're making the judgments of, the, the peer pressures that we create around ourselves and, and the strongholds that we allow to creep into our mind and our heart about the value of people whether it's Christ or culture. So he gives us a solution. He, he kind of closes up the, uh, the counseling session here, and he, he winds it down in this one in verse 8. He says, if you really keep the royal law in Scripture, this is the whole royal law. I mean, this is what wholeness is. Wholeness is not a kumbaya session where I can finally walk in the best version of me, and I'm happy 24-7. I think we just need to leave that American dream alone. That is not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God says that a full person, a Humpty Dumpty that falls down is shattered in, in, in pieces. And the Holy Spirit comes in, in the salvation, the sozo of a human soul to put back together. What is the full product of that? What is the full extent of that? It is the love of neighbor. It is, the, it is, it is a Christian walking and godly love for gay people and straight people, for black people and white people, for rich people and poor people. This, what, do you, what does God say is the whole person? What is a person that is fully put back together again? Is it somebody that's thrown their stick in the fire and forgiven their parents? That might be the start. But the full picture, to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, it's 70 degrees in North Korea because God died for all people. So the full picture of a human being fully put right again is the royal law, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And we should, we should engage in counseling this way. You are doing right, he says. Verse nine, but if you show favoritism and you sin, you're convicted as the whole lawbreaker. Like if you get one crack in your iPhone, the whole iPhone's broken. You can't just break one and be like, oh, that's not a big deal. The whole law is broken just by one law that's broken. One neighbor that is is hated. Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles, at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery, it's the same God that said you should not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Remember what Jesus says, murder is contempt. Like in other words, hate is probably not somebody you're infuriated by. Hate is somebody that's invisible to you. Hate is that text message that you would answer the one text message for the one person because they're good-looking and they're smart and they have a lot of money, and the other person's just annoying so you don't answer them. Hate isn't killing somebody, it's ghosting them. It's not inviting them to the party. It's just they're not even worth my attention and time. That's what hate is. And the full picture of wholeness is to love your neighbor, love all people that are made in the image of God that, that Christ died for. So here's the solution. Here's how we can get out of the prison. Here's how we can get out of the prison of favoritism and the prison of judgment And really the brokenness of human depravity that says that we love neighbor, but really just love the people that love us back. Here's how you get out of that. Speak and act as those who are judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been given mercy. The reality is that God did not come to judge and condemn the world. He came to save it. And he judges you through Jesus. But here's the problem. The prison that we're talking about of judgment is not God's prison. It's the prison you put on yourself because you've created a new law in your own image. And you're living at that table and creating, you're thinking you're keeping people out. You're actually locking yourself in through judgment when you, when you, when you create caste systems of people. Because you create caste systems of people. The, the law you extend is the law you live in. So he's saying there's a way out of this, though. He says if you practice judgment, you get judgment. But here's the second option. You can practice mercy. Because mercy triumphs over judgment. There's a passage at the end uh, of of John 13 when when Jesus is saying goodbye. He's closing up business with with disciples. He says, I give you a new command, verse 34. He says to love one another. And if you've been paying attention at all, if you're a disciple, you're like, dude, that's not a new command. That's an old command. That's a Moses command. Like we've been talking about, if there's anything that you have been paying attention to for the pop quiz at the end of this thing, it's clearly, I get it. Like love your neighbor, right? A new command I give you, love one another. So you're like, this is an old command. But then you read the second part of the verse. This is the new part of command. A new command I give you to love one another, and here's the asterisk marks, not just the ones that love you back, but love one another as I have loved you. The asterisk marks of gospel love versus old covenant love is that we are loving people through the cross. In other words, we, we, we are not loving people through judgment, we are loving people through mercy. How do you get out of the prison of judgment? Through mercy, because mercy triumphs over judgment. The mercy of the cross that all people, all people have been died for by Jesus a once and for all sacrifice that is, that is imposed value, limitless value on all people. And then in Jesus, as we are dealing with brothers and sisters, has inexhaustible riches that can all be listed in Ephesians of all the things that God is blessing all people with. And so that's the way. You are not treating people as they treat you. You're treating people as he treated you, as he treated them. That's how we're loving people. That's the new command that we live through mercy. If we were able to fulfill the law on ourselves, then we could judge the other people, but we can't because we needed mercy, so we extend mercy, and the only way we access the real perfect law of loving your neighbor is through mercy, not through judgment. So you must love one another. By this, everyone you know um, uh, will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So if we all got plopped down in the ocean uh, and we had to swim, you know, off from Charleston all the way to, 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 to England, we're all gonna die, right? Michael Phelps could come and join us, and he'd probably swim a lot longer than me, but not long enough, right? And so the point is, is like some of us have a little bit better jawline than other people. Like it's true. And we should be aware of that. Some of us had better metabolism. Some of us just remember facts. That's great. We should use that. Let them teach on school. You know, like let's understand that there's different measures of wealth, but none of that infers on worth. None of that can replace or add to or subtract to the death of Jesus. Like, let's have some scale and ratios and proportions to this thing. We're all drowning without Jesus. And so let's acknowledge the fact that there are, there, are, there are discrepancies and injustices, but at the end of the day, none of that none of that poverty confer on the wealth of Jesus that, people, that Jesus bestows on us, sheerly by mercy, sheerly by grace. So he calls us to the old law, but with a new command, with a new command to love people, to love our neighbors, and to love our enemies through the cross of Jesus, because we're all poor. You're sitting down in that counseling seat, and you have an opportunity to love people based on the rat race, that I'm going to run ahead of you, and you can help me run ahead of that guy, and if we just run faster than the slowest guy, that that guy's going to get eaten by the bear. But you're still in the Atlantic Ocean, you're going to drown. We can run by the rat race, or we can run with rest. We can run knowing that the one who saved us also saved our neighbor and we're at his mercy and so we should extend mercy. That's the opportunity, to be in prison or to be free. The prison of judgment and the freedom of mercy. We can have, have an opportunity to, to gossip and side talk and create little enclaves of all the good people and all the haves and keep all the have-nots out and live in a prison or we could extend mercy and realize that the anointing, the power of the gospel that's living inside of us is not living through judgment because Jesus didn't come to judge us. Judge us. And we can actually experience real freedom if we set aside these these silly, arbitrary little wealth markers that we have, and experience the great kingdom of heaven within mercy, that we can actually approach God our Father, and instead of seeing the caste system of, of John Piper in our head, or whoever it is, T.D. Jakes, or whoever it is that we think is our arbitrator between God, and actually go to the Father and actually trust that he is not, he's not coming to us through judgment and through ruler sticks, but through mercy, to know us, to be able to go boldly before our Father and pray to us, pray, pray to him. So um, I want to invite uh, the band to come forward and just put up our intentional question for the Spirit to seek us uh, this morning. Uh, uh, would the band come forward and um, also uh, deacons or elders um, to come forward uh, as well uh, for, um, for prayer? But this is the question I want to have on the screen, and um, would you stand with me real quick? So uh, Spirit, I pray that you would, you would seek us on this question, where is their favoritism in my life? Which you ask that to him and allow the spirit to seek? He knows you better than you. He is a great, you can save yourself a lot of money on counseling. You can, I'm not saying don't go to counseling, but there's a capital C counselor. And he's saying, we're gonna get to forgiveness. But before you get to forgiveness, you can't forgive unless you know what you've been forgiven of. That's the trick, that's the trick. So yes, we like people that like us back, but do we have the love of neighbor in us? Have mercy on us. The first question is Where where do I need to seek forgiveness? Where have I maybe not been infuriated by somebody, but they're just invisible to me? They're not worth my time. And actually, we thought they were a distraction, but they were actually the invitation to become whole, to practice real, actual love, to be set free of the idle love of judgment and be set free into the mercy love of Jesus. Who is the person that is not worth my time? My attention. Lord, we ask for forgiveness for these things. The second question. Who is it that I have on a pedestal? The one that I'm always looking over my shoulder. I wonder what they would think of me. They obviously are closer to God. They're my rulers. Lord, we just forgive them. We just release them. And we release that whole attitude, that whole mentality that somebody's swimming across the Atlantic Ocean. We thank you for bridging the gap perfectly over sin and being our great counsel and redeemer that is making us whole, not some other type of priest. And lastly, where is there, where is there judgment that I'm extending to others that it might, I, might, I might receive mercy, Lord, and extend mercy? Where's the place that I've actually believed my own press that I thought that I was better because I am more articulate, because I'm more emotionally responsible? Where have I put myself on a pedestal? God, have mercy on us that we could extend mercy. Father, I pray that you would replace favoritism for faith. I believe that's exactly what you've tried to pinpoint in this place, Lord, that the real journey to wholeness, to the fullness of the love of the Father, is moving from favoritism to faith to see people the way you see them. And Lord, to judge and to to act in wisdom, Lord, based on the cross. To echo and to reverberate and to extend what you've done on the cross, on Calvary, um, all around our lives. And we thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit that's doing that in this room.